0: Okay, so we're going to start with our review for today. Uh these are seventy-nine cards and thirty-six to review. Uh, what will happen if you don't issue the ownership of such receipt? So section fifty-three states that it will be punished for each offense by imprisonment not exceeding one year or by a fine not exceeding two thousand pesos or both. So if you read section fifty-three, issue for a warehouse men's goods of receipt, which does not state the fact where they are deposited. Or be held by a warehouseman goods which he is honor either solely or jointly or in common with others such as such as a warehouseman or any of his officers and agents or servants who knowing this ownership issues or aids in issuing a negotiable receipt for such goods who does not state such ownership shall be guilty of a crime upon conviction shall be punished with each offense by imprisonment not exceeding one year. Or by a fine not exceeding 2,000 pesos, or by both. Okay, so here we see that the punishment is really if you don't issue ownership for such receipt, is that you will be punished by imprisonment not exceeding one year, or by a fine not exceeding 2,000 pesos, okay, or both. Okay. What will happen if you fail to obtain negotiable receipt during delivery of goods? Okay. Again, uh, the question is what will happen if you fail to uh, fail to obtain negotiable receipt during the delivery of goods? The answer is that punishment will be one year imprisonment or a fine at exceeding two thousand pesos or both. Section 54 Delivery of goods without obtaining negotiable receipt. A warehouseman or any officer, agent, or ser- servant of a warehouseman who delivers g- goods out of the possession of such warehouseman, knowing that negotiable receipt, the negocia- negotiation of which would transfer the right to possession of such goods, is outstanding and cancelled without obtaining the possession of such receipt on or before the time of such delivery, shall except in the cases provided for in sections 14. 36 be found guilty of a crime and upon conviction shall be punished for each offense by imprisonment not exceeding one year or a fine not exceeding 2,000 pesos or by both. So basically, what will happen if you obtain a negotiable receipt during uh, if you fail to obtain a negotiable receipt during the delivery of goods, it is that your punishment will be one year of imprisonment. Or a final exceeding 2,000 pesos so upon delivery you have to obtain a negotiable receipt without that you will be fined a 2,000 pesos and there will be a one year of imprisonment so what if you ask for a receipt of mortgage of goods and you negotiated for value to others with an intent to deceive or without disclosing your want of title or an existence of a lien or a mortgage No, wala ka, kahibaw nga, wala ka nagpahibaw nga this is already it has an existing lien or a mortgage so it is punishable by imprisonment not exceeding 1 year or by a fine not exceeding 2,000 pesos section 55 provides negotiation receipt for mortgage goods any person who deposits goods which he has no title or upon which where there is a lien or a mortgage, and who takes for such goods a negotiable receipt which he afterwards negotiates for value and intent to deceive and withhold disclosing his one of title or existence of a lien or a mortgage, shall be guilty of a crime and upon conviction shall be punished of her each other offense by imprisonment not exceeding one year or a fine not exceeding 2,000 pesos or both. So, what are the ingredients of an offense punished by Section 54? The offense punished under Section 54 consists of the following ingredients. There is a delivery of goods out of the possession of the warehouseman. So, there is what you call a delivery uh, of goods out. No, So, we just imagine a warehouse wherein the goods are already delivered outside. Okay, And then, the warehouseman himself, or any officer, agent, or servant of the warehouseman, did this. The person who causes the delivery has the knowledge that the negotiable receipt for goods, which would transfer the right to the possession thereof, is outstanding and uncancelled. So we all know that the, the so called receipt has not yet been cancelled. So it's still existing. So it means, and it is presumed that it's still there the person causing the delivery does so without obtaining possession of the receipt or before the time of the delivery okay so these are the three elements number one that there is that there is a delivery of goods out of the warehouse then number two the person who causes the delivery has the knowledge that a negotiable receipt for the goods would which would transfer the right and the possession thereof is outstanding and cancelled so you have direct knowledge that it is outstanding and it is uncancelled. And then the person causing the de- delivery does so without obtaining the possession of the receipt at or before the time of delivery. The receipt ang resibo. Okay, explain what is compulsory counterclaim. A compulsory counterclaim is one which being cognizable by the regular courts of justice arises out of or is connected with the transaction of an occurrence constituting the subject matter of opposing party claim and does not require for its adjudication the process of third parties of whom the court cannot acquire jurisdiction. Such counterclaim must be within the jurisdiction of the court. That's a compulsory counterclaim. Okay, so what do you mean by this? A compulsory counter- counterclaim? Uh, first, as to jurisdiction, it should be cognizable uh, within the regular courts of justice and it is something that arises out or is connected with the transaction or occurrence constituting the subject matter of the opposing party's claim. Okay, so your your opposing party has a claim and it is connected with that particular transaction or occurrence such that it is it constitutes the subject matter of the opposing party's claim and does not require for its adjudication the presence of third party. So Qualify labot ang third parties if it's a compulsory counterclaim, and then with whom the court cannot acquire jurisdiction because they are third parties. If a warehouseman was not involved in the crime as per Section 54, will he be held liable? Okay, so let's read this: nature of criminal responsibility violation of the warehouseman himself under Section 54. May a warehouseman be held criminally liable, irrespective of whether he is a warehouseman in the name only, and irrespective of whether the duties of the warehouseman are actually performed by somebody else? Okay, the answer is no. If the accused had nothing to do with the withdrawal goods in question, the number two violation of some other person. Reading at section 54 shows that a person other than warehouseman may be held liable for violations thereof. The disjunctive use of the word or in the phrase, a warehouseman or any other officer, agent, or servant of the warehouseman imparts an alternative sense. The criminal responsibility punished by the law is individual, not attributive, so that the warehouseman should not be punished even for violations which some other officer, agent, or servant of a warehouseman may have committed. It is fundamental in criminal law. That unless conspiracy be shown, no one should be made to suffer the off the offences committed by another. So, basically, if it's not done by the warehouse man, and it is done by another person, and even if that person is considered an officer or an agent, but there is no conspiracy on their part, the warehouse man should not be made to suffer such offences committed. Okay, that is according to the peop- uh, the case of people versus the Chopa. Okay. Then the possibility that the right to goods sold have been transferred to a third person, in order that the warehouseman may be punished under Section 54 for having delivered goods from his warehouse to a person other than the one entitled there to order the corresponding securities, it is not necessary that the right of possession to such stored had been transferred to a third person it is sufficient that such right could have been transferred to the said person in the course of its transactions with a depositor in whose name the receipt of the stored goods was issued okay so there is a possibility that the right to goods sold have been transferred to a third person so in order that a warehouse man may be punished under section 54 for having delivered goods from his warehouse to another person. Okay, and the punish is when the warehouseman will deliver it to another person who other than the person entitled thereto, according to the corresponding securities. So in this case, it's not necessary that the right of the possession that the right of possession to such stored has been transferred to a third person. You should not you don't have necessarily you don't necessarily have to wait for it to be transferred to another third person. Okay, in the course of his transactions with the depositor uh, it is enough you know, it is sufficient that such rights could have been transferred so this is the key word here that such a right could have been transferred to the center person in the course of his transactions with the depositor in whose name the residual stored of goods was issued so what is there uh, when when is there an offense and it is not provided where this act what law shall govern it shall be governed by the provisions of existing legislation or in default thereof by rule of law Berchan. okay what are the possible grounds of affirmative defense that can be used as grounds for dismissal of a complaint that the court has no jurisdiction over the subject matter there is another action pending between the same parties for the same cause or the action is barred by prior judgment Again, what are the possible grounds for a, affirmative defense that can be used as grounds for dismissal of complaint? The court has no jurisdiction over the subject matter. Number two, there is another action pending between the same parties for the same cause. So, less pendentia, uh, no jurisdiction over the subject matter, or that the action is barred by prior judgment. What do you mean by law of merchant? Okay. History and Meaning of the Law of Merchant The Law of Merchant, from which developed the rules of bills, notes, and sales of goods, partnerships, guarantee, assurances, agency, originated in the unwritten customs of merchants in different commercial countries. It consisted of usages of trade in different departments to commerce, proved in court ratified by legal decisions upon the assumption that the persons entering transactions in different departments of trail, trade dealt with each other in a footing of any custom or usage generally prevailing on those departments. That usage is engrafted upon or incorporated with law and according and binding to the courts. So here we see the law merchant. No? Unsay, his say, niya. Nagsugud ko no ni siya sa mga rules of bills, notes, sales of goods, partnerships, guarantee, insurance, and agency. Nga, unwritten pang mga rules and customs among merchants and this is uh, coming from different commercial countries ang gamit niya is for usages the the use is the usages of trade different departments of commerce prove in court and ratified by legal decision so yeah moral jurisprudence bang it has been the common practice and what is uh, the the basis for the, the the result of the adjudication among the courts became what it is Based on its legal legal decisions. No? Upon the assumption that persons entering upon transactions, money ang assumptions niya, in different departments of trade, dealt with each other on the footing of any custom or usage generally prevailing on those departments. So, itan unsay mga generally prevailing doctrines, and that is what is so applied. And so that the usage is engrafted upon or incorporated with the law and accordingly binding to the courts. I think the essence here is that it somehow it has been the the, the usual way of deciding upon disputes tra- uh, involving trades and merchant transactions, and so it was engrafted upon or incorporated with our laws, okay, and considered binding in the courts. So, let's proceed now to another question. What is constructive dismissal? Constructive dismissal exists when there is a cessation of work because continued employment has is rendered impossible, unreasonable, or unlikely. It is present when an employee's functions, which are originally supervisory in nature, were reduced, and such reduction is not grounded or valid grounds such as genuine business necessity. Okay, so, on sa man ang constructive dismissal na Asia, Hunai cessation of work because of because if you continue employment, it is rendered impossible, unreasonable, and unlikely. So remember the three eyes: impossible, unreasonable, ay, ayude impossible unreasonable, reasonable and unlikely so if you continue it is impossible it's unreasonable and unlikely it is present when an employee's functions which are originally supervisory in nature were reduced and such reduction is not grounded in valid grounds such as genuine business necessity so what is the nature and limits of arbitrators uh, arbitrator's power the nature and limits of arbitrator's power as a rule the award of arbitrator cannot be set aside by mere errors of judgment either as to the law or as to the facts courts are without power to amend or overrule merely because of disagreement with the matters of law or facts determined by arbitrators they will not review the findings of law and fact contained in an award and will not undertake to substitute their judgment or that the arbitrator since an, any other rule would make an award the commencement and not the end of litigation errors of law or fact or an erroneous decision of matters submitted to the judgment of arbitrators are insufficient to invalidate an award fairly and honestly made and the judicial review of arbitration is thus more limited than the judicial review of trial Nonetheless the arbitrator's award is not absolute and without exceptions. The arbitrators can resolve issues beyond the scope of the submission agreement so what, what was agreed nga mao ilang adjudicate mo ra lang ang or umo gid ang ilang they are the, these are the only Things that they have to decide upon. The parties to such an agreement are bound by the arbitrator's award only to the extent and the manner prescribed in the contract, and only if the award is rendered in conformity thereto. Thus, section 24 and 25 of the Arbitration Law provide grounds for vacating, rescinding, or modifying an arbitration award, where the conditions described in ar- described in Article 2038, 2039, and 1040 of the Civil Code applicable to compromises and arbitration are attended. The arbitration award may also be annulled. No. So, what is the test to determine if there is constructive dismissal? The test of constructive dismissal is whether a reasonable person in the employee's position would have felt compelled to give up his position under the circom- circumstances. So, we always compare it to a person of a reasonable person. Kung ibutang ni mo siya anang nga situation ng ibong piton ang employee. Would he feel compelled to give up his position under the circumstances. Okay, it is an act amounting to dismissal but made to appear as if it were not. No, kay mga maayo ani. In fact, the employee who is constructively dismissed may be allowed to keep on coming to work. No, no, pero imo ditong gipiit kay ganahan ka mawala na siya sa imong kompanya. Okay? So very mean. Kind of boss. Constructive dismissal is therefore a dismissal in disguise. Okay, and the law recognizes and resolves the situation in favor, the em- uh, in favor of the employee in order to protect their rights and interests from the coercive acts of the employer. Okay, so kani mwing ani bang masal bias moves. Okay. So, is transfer considered illegal dismissal? The exercise of management prerogative to transfer may also lead to constructive dismissal. The employer must demonstrate that the transfer is not unreasonable, inconvenient, and prejudicial to the employee and that the transfer does not involve a demotion in rank or diminution of salary and other benefits. If the employer fails to overcome this burden of proof, the employee's transfer is tantamount to unlawful constructive dismissal. Payment before maturity. Which of the following payment is not payment in due course? Payment before maturity, payment in good faith, payment to the holder, payment after maturity. Okay, which of the following payments is not a payment in due course? Uh payment before maturity. And uh, that's the answer, huh? Which of the following payments is not a payment in due course? The answer is payment before maturity. So, what? po about? eh, not a payment in due course man. So, kaning payment in good faith, payment to the holder, payment after maturity, this is what you call payment in due course. Pero mobile giga before the maturity, that is not considered payment in due course. Who was the burden to prove that the illegal dismissal or the resignation was done voluntarily? Who has the burden to prove that the legal dismissal or resignation was done voluntarily? Okay, The answer is that can an employee who submitted a revocable resignation claim that he has been constructively dismissed? The answer is on the affirmative. If the resignation is the result of surrounding circumstances which compelled the employee to tender his resignation, then it is a product of constructive dismissal. Even if it was a revocable resignation, it does not mean it is voluntarily executed. It is the burden of the employer to prove that the resignation was voluntarily executed. What usually happens to an employee when he is constructively dismissed? The first time the employee either files an irrevocable resignation effective immediately or goes on absence without leave. The common reaction of the employee is to file a resignation letter. As regards floating status, Article 301 may be applied, but only by analogy to set a specific period. That employees may remain temporarily laid off or in floating status six months in the, uh, is the period set by law. The operation of a business or undertaking may be suspended, thereby suspending the employment of the employees concerned. The temporary layoff, wherein the employees likewise cease to work, should not also last longer than six months. After six months, the employee should either be recalled to work or permanently retrenched. Following the requirements of law and failing to comply of this would thus be liable for dismissal so differentiate ordinary appeal under the force for s from the special action of certiorari under rule 65 okay the application of law okay and arbitration awards under section 29 thereof an appeal may be taken from a judgment entered upon an award through certiorari proceedings but such appeals shall be limited to the questions of law the proceedings upon such an appeal, including the judgment thereon, shall be governed by the rules of court so far as they are applicable. The term certiorari in a afore quoted provision refers to the ordinary appeal under Rule 45 not the special action of certiorari under Rule 65. It is an appeal as Section 21 pro- and proclaims the proper forum for this action is under the old and the new rules of procedure in the Supreme Court. Thus, Section 2, Rule 41 of the 1997 Rules of Civil Procedure states that in all cases where only questions of law are raised or involved, the appeal shall be with the Supreme Court by petition for review of certiorari in accordance with Rule 45. However, Section 29 limits the appeal to Question questions of law another indication that is referring to an appeal by society under rule 45 which is indeed is the customary manner of re- reviewing such issues on the other hand the extraordinary remedy of society under rule 65 may be availed of by a party where there is no appeal or nor plain speedy and adequate remedy in the course of law in other circumstances where a tribunal board or other officer is ex- exercising judicial functions has acted without or in excess of its jurisdiction or with grave abuse of discretion. So, is demotion equivalent to constructive dismissal? Demotion can be considered as constructive dismissal. Demotion is the reduction of petitioner's responsibilities and duties, particularly from supervisor to ordinary technician, constituted a demotion in rank tantamount to constructive dismissal. Invalid demotion is tantamount to constructive dismissal. A valid demotion is legal and is considered a lawful exercise of management prerogative to discipline employees. So what is preventive dismissal? Disciplinary measure. What is a preventive dismissal? It is a disciplinary measure for the protection of company's property pending investigation of any alleged malfeasance or misfeasance committed by the employee. What is the answer to the complaint filed by the defending party? Okay, it's called the answer. What is the legal principle behind no work, no pay? A fair day's wage for a fair day's work. No, so that's the legal principle behind no work, no pay. A fair day's wage for a fair day's work. What is the uh? When is the employee entitled to back wages? Okay, when is he entitled for back wages? It should be the ground for suspension uh, if the ground... For suspension is unfounded okay so if you if you find that if you suspend an employee and the grounds for which are unfounded of course you have to give them back wages what what are the what should be the kind of reinstatement not to be done with a person who has been uh, experiencing preventive suspension and you have to um after 30 days he is already uh, the investigation is not yet done so you can do pre- payroll reinstatement so what are the grounds of modifying an award in ADR so you have to memorize this these are the grounds by which you can uh, modify an award in alternative dispute resolution section 25 which enumerates the grounds for modifying the award provides the grounds for modifying or correcting award in any one of the following cases the court must make an order modifying or correcting the award upon the application of any party to the controversy which was arbitrated, where there was evident miscalculation of figures or an evident mistake in the description of any person, thing, or property referred to in the award, or when the arbitrators have awarded upon a matter not submitted to them, not affecting the merits of the decision upon the matter submitted. Okay, so let's start with the first one. Unsang the ground, no? If there is an evident miscalculation of figures, no, compute ang figures. No, or evident mistake in the description of any person, thing, property referred to the award. Okay? Isn't this questions of fact? No? Where the arbitrators have awarded upon a matter not submitted to them, can you No. It is an issue which was not submitted to the arbitrators and then they'd make a decision about it. Remember that the ADR is a creature of contract. So it means that whatever was agreed in the contract should be the basis for whatever agreement they have so in short the arbitrators are limited only as to matters that they were submitted you know, as provided by the contract they should adjudicate so where the award is imperfect is a matter of form not affecting the merits of the controversy and it if had been a commissioner's report the defect would have been amended or disregarded by the court so, when the award is imperfect in a matter of form, so if there are questions in form not affecting the merits of the controversy, and if it had been a commissioner's report, the defect would have been amended or disregarded by a court. So, define what is serious misconduct. Misconduct is the improper or wrong conduct, it is the transgression of some established definite rule of action forbidden act at the election of duty willful in character implies wrongful intent and that mere error of judgment it's, it's not just mere error of ju- judgment the misconduct to be serious must be grave and aggravated character and not merely trivial or unimportant okay what are the requirements for the misconduct or improper behavior to be a just cause for dismissal first it must be serious now, that's why it's called serious misconduct because it's serious then, it must be related to the performance of the employee's duties. So, you cannot prosecute a person for a fault that is not related to his performance or uh, you know anything related to his performance. It must show that the employee has become unfit to continue working for the employer. Okay? so misconduct is improper or wrong conduct it is a transgression no thus for misconduct or improper behavior to be just cause for dismissal it must be serious it must be related to the performance of the employees duties and it must show that the employees has become unfit to continue working for the employer indeed an employer may also be compelled to continue to employ such person whose continuance in service would be patently inimical to his employer's interest the supreme court added an element which is wrongful intent in the absence of wrongful intent, the penalty must be suspension and not termination from employment. The misconduct to be serious within the meaning of the act must be grave and aggravated character, and not mere trivial or important. Okay, what happens if the consent of the party who should be joined as plaintiff cannot be obtained? He may be he may be made a defendant, and the reason therefore shall be stated in the complaint. What will happen to the punishment for a misconduct if it has no wrongful intent? What will happen to the punishment for a misconduct if it has no wrongful intent? It should only be suspension. So, absence wrongful intent, it will not be a ground for uh, dismissal. You can only do suspension. In the case, for example, you have a worse or deplorable attitude, what is the offense? One unique case in regarding an employee whose attitude is deplorable. She is tactless and insolent in dealing with her superior despite repeated warnings from the employer, obstinately refuses to curtail a bellicose inclination such that it erodes the morale of the co-employees. The same may be ground for dismissal for serious misconduct. her your hat- attitude eroded the morale of her co-employees in the Supreme Court. serious misconduct. So, according to Article 219, Paragraph F, the employee includes any person in the employ of an employer unless the code so explicitly states. So, what is the quantum of evidence required in labor cases? It is substantial evidence. Okay? For example, of serious misconduct is theft committed by an employee. A criminal conviction is not required before the employee can be terminated. Substantial evidence not guilt beyond reasonable doubt is required in labor cases in one case a new woman employed in a religious medical institution was impregnated by her co-employee boyfriend the two sweethearts with are with no legal impediments the supreme court ruled that there must be substantial evidence to establish that uh, premarital sex and pregnancy was done